Well, we're going to enter into a very interesting passage of Scripture as we open to 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> you know, I believe that every passage of Scripture is written to be understood. And I believe that when we have an accurate and a right understanding of every passage, it's going to make sense. And it's going to line up with the rest of Scripture. So when I go through conferences or when I was pastoring and I would teach through books, I refuse to do what many commentators often do, and that is skip over the tough places. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you go to a commentary or maybe just looking in your study Bible and you're really hoping that they'll give you an answer for a difficult passage of scripture and there's no information on it and you just really feel let down. So as I approach passages like this and even as different theological perspectives and ideas come up, I feel like it's, it's really important to wrestle with them. And we're all going to have passages that we wrestle with. Uh, we're all going to have passages that we're torn between one idea or another. Uh, sometimes I may be a little bit hard on certain approaches. Uh, maybe I was a little too hard last night uh, on some approaches. But, you know, when something detracts from the glory of God, to me, that's a serious thing. Amen. When something presents God in a light that is not true to his character as it's revealed in scripture, anything that's going to diminish his praise and honor and glory, there's really something wrong with it. And some theological positions do that very thing. So as we come into 2 Peter chapter 2, we're entering into one of those passages that can, it's, it's almost like a, a bear trap. If it doesn't get you coming in, it's going to get you going out. And there are a lot of people who, if you read their notes or their commentaries on it, will take a position at the beginning of the chapter, and then they have to change their position at the end of the chapter, and they don't even realize they're being inconsistent. So we're going to have a lot of fun with Second Peter chapter 2. If you will, let's pray and ask God to guide us as we work our way through it. Father in heaven, as we once again open your precious word, what a marvelous privilege it is to live in a part of the world where we have Bibles. There are so many people all over the world that would just give everything that they own to just have the precious possession of a Bible. So, Father, I pray that we'll realize how privileged we are and what a wonderful thing it is that as the word is being taught, we can actually open our Bible and look and see what the scripture says. The important thing is never what I or any other teacher says. The important thing is what does the scripture say? So, Father, I pray that your spirit will guide us as we enter into this difficult and yet valuable and wonderful portion of scripture and help us to uh, work through some of the difficulties and come through it with a clarity of mind that only increases our love and adoration and appreciation for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter one, we have the calling of the Christian. And we've seen that it's a call to faith in Christ. It's a call to spiritual growth and it's a call to service. Now we enter into the combat of the Christian. 
as sure as you take a position on Jesus Christ, as you commit yourself to him, you trust him as your savior, you commit yourself to grow in his word, you are going to have enemies. You are going to have people that are going to come against you. Uh, unfortunately, even in Christian camps, we sometimes have people who uh, become enemies over interpretations and so on and so forth. But that's not really the same as those who are enemies because they hate Christ. So as we come into this passage, we're going to be dealing with false prophets. And I want you to notice, and I'm just going to read the first three verses here, where Peter says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. I want you to notice that the passage begins with a conjunction of contrast. The word, but. The little word, but, Beginning verse 1 is important because it's showing that there is a shift of gears. There is a change of focus from prophets who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to teachers who are teaching apart from the leading of the Spirit and the truth of Scripture. We're now shifting gears to a completely different perspective. We're no longer talking about teachers of truth. We're no longer talking about the truth of the Bible. We're talking about people who look at the Bible as an opportunity to exploit. It's a tool that they can use. It's something that they can twist into what their own mind manufactures. And I'm sure that you've probably heard the statement that you can prove anything from Scripture if you twist Scripture enough, or if you take a passage of Scripture out of its context you can prove just about anything. I'm sure all of you remember the story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is led into the wilderness and after 40 days of fasting at his weakest point, which is when the enemy is going to attack you, Satan arrives on the scene and starts trying to tempt him. And how does he try to tempt him? He quotes scripture. So as we go through our study here, you're going to find that there are some false teachers whose lives will be of the lowest of the dregs of society. In other words, they will live like the scum of the earth and yet present themselves as teachers of the truth. For most of us, those people are not the real danger. For most of us, the people that are real, the real danger are people who have tremendous intellect, people who are very brilliant, people who live sterling lives, People that you would look at and say, this has to be a teacher of the truth, and yet the positions that they take on Scripture are false. So you're going to run into both kinds, and Peter deals with both kinds in the context of this second chapter. Why is this chapter so difficult? Well, it may surprise you to find that in chapter 2, Peter uses 20 words that are never used anywhere else in the New Testament. In these few short verses, 
What do we have here? We have 22 verses. In 22 verses, you have 20 words that are not found anywhere else in Scripture. Not only that, but you have at least seven or eight words that can only be found one other time in Scripture, sometimes only by Peter in 1 Peter. So immediately we realize that we're standing on pretty unusual ground. But that's not the end of it. The thing that confuses many people is Peter's constant repetition of the third person plural pronoun. They, them, or their. Because when you start talking about they and them, and you have three different groups in mind, and you're saying they and them and their, very easy to get confused, isn't it? And this is what causes a lot of problems for people. And to be honest with you, it's, it's taken me years of uh, just constant digging and attention and unraveling uh, to to offer what I have to give you this afternoon, and I pray that it'll be a blessing in your life. So the contrast then is between the prophets that existed, false prophets that existed, and you can go back in the Old Testament. Uh, the devil always has his instruments. I have notes there for you under point one. Isaiah 28, 7 and 8. Jeremiah 5, 31. Jeremiah 6, 14. Jeremiah 23, 9 through 18, Jeremiah 30, uh, uh, sorry, verses 30 and 32 of chapter 23, and then chapter 28, 1 to 17, Ezekiel 13, 16, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, Micah 3, 11 through 12, Acts 20, 28 to 30, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Paul tells us in Timothy that in the last days, men will not endure sound doctrine but they will heap to themselves teachers who tickle their ears. You and I are there. That's the reason this church is not packed. Because there are people that only want to hear what is pleasing to them. He also tells us something different. And that is that in the last days, there will be people who will come teaching doctrines of demons. Now here's the shocking thing to me today. What you would have expected to come from a cult what you would have expected to come from a false religion is now what is being peddled by our government. Our government has become the purveyor of false doctrine. And they are constantly bombarding us with a lifestyle, with a perspective of the world, with a cultural idea that is totally contrary to Scripture. And it's hammering us and hitting us everywhere we go. So bad is it that the day will come when you say what I just said will put you in prison. And I fully realize that that day may come for me because they are absolutely intolerant. The people who 10, 20 years ago were telling us we need to be tolerant are now the people who are absolutely intolerant of any position but their own. As I said last night, we live in one of those rare generations where that which is good is called evil and that which is evil is called good. And we are going to be condemned. We are going to be pursued. We're going to be harassed. We're going to be hounded if we don't agree that evil is good and good is evil. That's the time in which we live. So Second Peter may be very helpful for us. So there were false prophets 
among the people, and there will be false teachers among us. Paul, of course, warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he said, from your own selves, ravenous wolves will arise. Not from out there, not from a cult, not from some other religious perspective, from among yourselves. And uh, Pastor Novice and I were just talking yesterday about uh, a man that we both looked up to, used to study his materials, and now he has completely changed his whole perspective on all of the stuff that's being pushed today and accepting uh, and uh, now promoting it. So it's going to happen from among ourselves. And it says that they're going to bring in destructive heresies. You'll notice it says they do this secretly. The words that are used here are words that talk about trying to infiltrate or trying to sneak into a group or a company. It's a word that was used in the military for enemy troops that would try to break into a fort or infiltrate a military installation or sneak in among an, a, uh, an enemy army. And so this is how they come in. They come, come in secretly, but the things that they bring in are destructive heresies. And the word for heresy is a word that doesn't just mean a false teaching. It means something that causes division. One thing every pastor has to watch out for, and I've had to deal with it many times, and I think every pastor does, is people will come in. We're always happy to see people come in and join our group, become a part of our ministry. But there are people that will come in and they'll look great in the beginning and they'll talk about what a wonderful church it is. But then little by little, they start talking about, well, you know, I really disagree on this point. And it goes from one thing to the next. And pretty soon they've got a little group of people they've gathered together that they're talking to and they're trying to sow their division and their dissension among these people. And it causes church splits. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about here. People that bring in destructive heresies. But I want you to notice the phrase, denying the Lord who bought them. Now, this is where a certain philosophical position of Scripture runs into a problem. Because there are those who say that Jesus Christ did not die for all men. He only died for those that God would save. Here's the first side of the bear trap. Denying the Lord who bought them. The word for bought is the word that is used for redemption, for the paying of the ransom. It's the word agarazzo. It meant to go into the slave market and to pay the price of a slave, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did. But here's my question. If Christ only died for those that God is going to save, then we have to conclude, you see, the positions that we take always force us to draw certain conclusions. So if we believe that Jesus Christ only died for certain men, and it tells us here that he bought these people who are bringing in heresies, then we have to conclude that these people are believers. Agreed? But there's a problem with that. You say, well, that's not a problem. We just agree that they're believers. Well, there's a problem because that same philosophical position says that if you're a true believer, you will persevere to the end. Do you see the problem? 
How can you be a believer for whom Christ died, who is supposed to persevere to the end, but you're not persevering to the end, you're denying the Lord and Savior who bought you? It obviously presents an insurmountable obstacle. I hope you're getting the drift of what I'm saying. Peter's talking here about unbelievers. He's talking about people who have rejected Jesus Christ. The word for deny is the word arnetomai. It's a very strong word. It not only means to say no to, but it means to say it in very strong terms. Sometimes it carries the idea of rejecting with force or thrusting away from yourself. They are denying, they're rejecting, they're thrusting away from themselves the Lord and Savior who bought them. Now, how do they do that? Well, there are two ways. One, they can teach things that violate the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. That is a rejection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they can say, yeah, we believe that Jesus went to the cross. He paid for our sins. And therefore, because we're under grace, it's okay for us to live any way we want to live. Let us eat, drink, and meet Mary, or make Mary, or whatever you want to do. Let us do whatever we want to do because we're under grace. You probably have run into people who have expressed those very ideas. You know, have you ever heard someone say, well, I know it's a sin, but I'll just do it, and later I'll first John 1, 9 it. Right? It, it makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there are many, many ways that a person can deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this. To say that God does not love every member of the human race is a denial of Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus Christ did not die for every member of the human race, which is clearly stated in Scripture, is a denial of Jesus Christ. So if I was a little bit harsh last night, you understand why. When Jesus looked on the multitudes, and I sometimes play a little game where I retranslate Scripture, and I do this, obviously I'm doing it facetiously, retranslate Scripture to fit certain philosophical positions. <clears throat> So in Matthew chapter 9, it says Jesus looked on the multitudes and he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. I gain from that, and I believe what the passage is telling us is that his heart went out to every one of those people. As he looked on those multitudes, whether they were rich, whether they were poor, whether they were good looking, whether they were not so good looking, whether they were upper crust, lower crust, didn't matter. As Jesus looked on the people, he wasn't looking at the outward appearance. He was looking at souls on their way to eternity in the lake of fire, and his heart was moved with compassion. But if we take certain philosophical positions and approaches to the word, we would have to retranslate that and say Jesus looked on the multitude and had compassion on those he was going to save. Do you see the difference? Do you see how one is a denial of the character of Jesus Christ and a denial of the love of God? So denying the Lord who bought them. By the way, uh, just a little grammatical thing here. In Scripture, sometimes a word precedes another word when the grammar demands that it be the other way around. I'm trying to not be too technical here, but 
They deny him after he bought them. That's what the verb tenses tell us. He bought them first. He paid the penalty for their sins. He went to the cross and died for them. He opened for them the door to eternal life. And what do they do after all that he has done? They reject him. They thrust him away. They want nothing to do with him. So we see that the character of the false teachers is, first of all, that they sneak in with the goal of destroying. The word destruction is the word apalia. Uh, Apollia, you'll see in the book of Revelation, it talks about the destroying demon named Apollyon. It's the same root word. Apollia. They sneak in to destroy. They deny the Lord and Savior whose sacrifice bought them. And then third, they lead many astray. Here is the tragedy. Many, Peter says, will follow their destructive ways. All right, we have two groups of people being spoken of. We have false teachers who have snuck in, crept into the church, and we have those who are going to follow them. Those who are going to follow them are believers. Those who are going to be deceived by them are children of God. We need to keep the two different groups separate and clear in our mind. Because these people who reject Jesus Christ seek to lead the people who believe in Jesus Christ astray. And unfortunately, it happens all too often. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The idea here is that, uh, and Jude picks this up, you can compare uh, much of what Peter says in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 with the book of Jude, those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. The word to turn means to twist or distort, to twist out of shape. They take the grace of God, the most marvelous, wonderful provision that God has given to you and I. Grace, free grace, precious grace, wonderful grace, the wonderful grace of Jesus as we sing about it. And they are able to twist and distort that grace into something that is in the end horrible. They twist the grace of God into an excuse for a lawless and a licentious way of life. That by itself is a terrible denial of the Lord, of his sacrifice, and of what he has done for us. He says that these people who deny the Lord and deceive others and lead others astray at the end of verse 1 will bring on themselves swift destruction. And I just want to back up to pick up that idea because we often look at those who abuse the grace of God, those who twist the scripture, those who lead people astray, even, I mean, I look at, can I say, our, most of our political class, and I ask the question, why does God allow them to continue? How many years have some of them gone? I mean, we've got people who their entire adult life and they're in their 80s have never done anything with their life, have never produced anything, have made millions off the American people. And I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out how can you go into office in this country as just a middle class person and within your first term, you're a multimillionaire. Has that ever, you know, caused you to question? 
And every term that you stay, your millions continue to multiply. Well, I'll tell you a little secret. We have been giving up to this point, I think we've given something like maybe, I, I could be wrong in the numbers, but it's somewhere in the vicinity, $200 billion to a little country called Ukraine. Smaller than the size of Texas, I believe. $200 billion. Do you know how much a billion is? If you had a billion dollars, you could give away a million dollars a day for a year and you'd still have money. That's a lot of money. A million seconds is, see if I can remember this correctly. A million seconds is 12 hours ago. A billion seconds is 12 days ago. And a trillion seconds is 30,000 years ago. I could be off on the figures, but not that much. And they throw around terms like trillions. We're talking a trillion seconds, 30,000 years. Turn that into dollars. And yet, have you noticed our roads are becoming third world roads? Every time we get an administration in, they're going to fix infrastructure. They pass bills, billions and billions of dollars for infrastructure. Has anyone ever seen any infrastructure getting fixed? I mean, the roads are always being fixed, but they're always being fixed. Go down I-30 west of Little Rock. It's been under construction for what, the last 40 years? It's unbelievable. And it never gets better. The point I'm making is all of that money is funneled off into some sinkhole where it gets lost and somehow finds its way back around into the pockets of the people that vote for the plan. We have a very corrupt class leading our country. And I'm not painting with a brush that includes everybody, but I'm just saying, unfortunately, corruption has become the way of the so-called leadership of this country. Well, you know what? That's bad enough when you're dealing with unbelieving and unsaved politicians. How much worse is it when it is unbelieving and unsaved people who creep into a church under the guise of being servants of Jesus Christ? Now it becomes a very serious thing. So their destruction is going to come. Don't worry. God knows the how. He knows the when. And his timing is always perfect. He says in verse 3, by covetousness they will deceive you. They deceive you for their own gain. In other words, in their greed, they're going to exploit you. The word exploit is a word that actually means to make merchandise of you. They're going to make merchandise of you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. This almost seems like a contradiction of terms. For a long time, their destruction is coming swiftly is almost what it seems like it's saying. What it's actually telling us is something very important. And you can find it if you read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. You remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that every single member of the human race comes to a point of God consciousness somewhere in their life. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen so that they are understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. 
Now, there are people in the world that don't have Bibles, and there are people in the world that may not have heard the gospel, but there is no one in the world that doesn't see creation. One of the most amazing events that Nan and I ever participated in on the mission field was when we spoke to a group of 300 people in a very remote place in Africa, and we, we shared the gospel, kept giving the gospel. They just didn't get it. And finally, I told them to look up. It was a very black night and we had a fire burning in the middle of the village. And I told them to look up and I said, look up at the stars. And of course, there's no light pollution in the middle of Africa. And they looked up and just these brilliant stars blazing across the sky. I said, look up at those stars. I said, the God who created you created those stars. And I'll tell you something else. The God who created you named every one of those stars. And if you'll notice something, those stars don't all look alike. Every single one of them is different, just like every single one of you are different. And God cares so much more for you than he did for those stars that he took the time to name that he sent his son into the world to go to the cross and pay the penalty for your sins. I may as well tell you the rest of the story because it was miraculous. I had a group within about the space of the company that's sitting here this morning that held 300 people. And it was as if the Holy Spirit just went. And we saw a ripple go through that crowd and we watched souls enter eternal life. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Their eyes lit up. They started smiling. They started looking at each other, shaking their head like, yeah, we got it. And it was just like somebody went. And the weird thing was, I saw it, Nan saw it, our son saw it, the guy that was with it saw it, and we all said later, did you see that? I mean, am I making this up? No, it happened. And yet there are people that will use what could be an opportunity like that to line their pockets. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Creation speaks of him. But as Paul goes on in that passage in Romans 1, what does he tell us? Just turn to Romans 1. I may as well just take you there and let's see it. Romans chapter 1. Romans is my favorite book. I've been in Romans all my life. I'm going to die in the book of Romans. Follow with me from Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What's the point he's making? Anyone who rejects Jesus Christ only does it after a long time of suppressing the truth. They suppress the truth in creation. They suppress the truth that their own conscience is giving them. They suppress the truth that the scripture says. And after a long period of time hardening their heart, they are going to seal themselves into an eternal doom. Because what may be known of God is manifest notice in them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. He's talking about the whole unbelieving world. People always ask me, what about the heathen who have never heard? My answer is there's no such thing. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 10? Oops, went off there for a minute. Demonic interference. What does he tell us in Romans 10? 
I say, have they not heard? Verily their voice went out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What is he saying? He's saying there is no one that hasn't heard. Because the message of creation and the message of conscience will drive you to the message of the truth of the scripture. If you have a humble and a sensitive and a receptive heart. So he continues saying, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This is not me saying this. This is God saying this. Why are they without excuse? Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Neither were thankful, but they became foolish in their thoughts, uh, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here is the beginning of the hardening of the heart. If you harden your heart to creation, you will continue by hardening your heart to your conscience, and you will continue when you hear the scripture, you will harden your heart to the word of God. It is a dangerous and a perilous path. And so when Paul says, in, or when Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, their judgment is not delaying, what is he saying? He's saying the minute you're confronted with truth and you say no, your judgment has already begun. You want to see how it happens? Follow along with me. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They're 90% of our university professors. <laughs> Our lawyers destroy law, our judges destroy justice, our university professors destroy knowledge, and our political leaders destroy freedom. How is that for a wonderful place to live? Verse 23, they changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, they entered into the worship of idols. Therefore, here is how judgment unfolds. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Do you know what the rampant sexual perversion in our country tells us? It tells us that the judgment of God is on this nation and he has given us up. God gave them up to uncleanness who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. I didn't write this. This has been around for 2,000 years. Receiving in themselves the due recompense or penalty of their error which was due. Do you know what the penalty is? It's the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is a darkened soul and a hardened conscience, a hardened heart, which is either increasingly going darker and harder or somewhere along the line, God the Holy Spirit breaks through. And thank God there are people who wake up and hear the gospel and respond to it. And God blows the darkness away and breaks the hardness of the heart. And he creates a new creature in that soul that trusts Christ as their savior. 
Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. You notice three times here, verse 26, verse 24, 26, and 28, God gives them up. You know what that is? That is increasing levels of divine judgment as God withdraws his restraining grace on an individual or a nation. Where do you see us today in light of Romans chapter 1? Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things that are not fitting, not natural. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. You know, it's a terrible condemnation to reject God and to go into that downward spiral of judgment that is really self-induced and self-imposed. God's judgment begins by letting us go the way we want to go. We say no to the truth. We reject the Lord and Savior. We turn our back on the grace of God. And God's judgment is, I'm going to withdraw a little of my restraining grace. And we go further. We go darker. We go harder. And he says, I'm going to withdraw a little more of my restraining grace. And as we continue in that path, there comes a time where the Lord throws up his hands and says, now you've sealed your own doom. You know how he judges us? He lets us judge ourselves. Peter says, as we go back to 2 Peter, they bring on themselves swift destruction. Listen, they're already under judgment. They're already suffering the effects of the beginning. You can look at some of these people and you know that they've got one foot in this world and they've got one foot already in hell because of their tormented soul. Their souls are warped, they're twisted and tormented. And the reason that they want to inflict so much sorrow and suffering on everyone around them, the reason that they're always so angry is because they're trying somehow to expel from themselves the misery and the anger that they feel and impose it on someone else. But my friends, how terrible is it when these people come into churches? Because this is what Peter's talking about. So he wants us to understand that God does judge, and I'm quickly going to touch on this, just reading our next section. Let's read verses 4 through 9. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who would afterwards live ungodly 
and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under judgment for the, or under punishment for the day of judgment. The point that Peter wants us to get from verses four through nine is this. Leave judgment to God. Leave judgment to God and trust God for deliverance. That's the main thrust. The examples that he uses are biblical examples that we can go back and study and read about that help us understand that, yes, the world before the flood was in a horrible condition and God did judge the world, but at the same time he judged the world, he delivered Noah and his family. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah was a horrible and an evil place, but God did judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did deliver Lot and his family. But there's an unspoken element in this. God knows how to judge the wicked, and God knows how to judge America. God knows how to deliver his people and God knows how to deliver you and I in the middle of what we're in right now. But there's an unspoken element. And I want to throw this unspoken element out to you and then we're going to break for lunch. It was always my favorite hour. Everybody say, what's your favorite hour in school? Lunch. <laughs> if it wasn't that, it was recess. Here's the unspoken element. Sometimes, even after God has delivered people, they have absorbed so much of the culture that he pulled them out of that they fall right back into judgment. It happened with Noah. As we'll see, after the flood, Ham brought cursing on his entire lineage. He was delivered from the judgment of the flood. But he had picked up some qualities and characteristics from the culture he lived in that he carried with him to his own destruction. When God delivered Lot and his family, the angels took him by the hand. Here's Lot. Here's his wife. Here's the other angel with his two daughters, almost dragging them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did the angel tell them? The judgment of God is going to fall. Flee for your lives and... Do not look back. And Lot's wife, having been delivered, turned back and looked at Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt. This unspoken element, you know, the Jewish rabbis always said, don't just look for what the scripture says. Look for conspicuous things that it's not saying. I just gave you two conspicuous things that it's not saying because if you don't wrap your mind around that element, the end of this chapter is going to be incomprehensible to you. It's the very thing that gives so many commentators so much difficulty at the end of the chapter because here's what happens. Many 
enter into 2 Peter chapter 2, identifying unbelievers as believers, and they get to the end of chapter 2, and they're identifying believers as unbelievers. And I don't want you to make that mistake. Because Peter talks about they and them, and then they and them, and then they and them, and you have to keep the they and them straight. There are over 30 third person plural pronouns in this chapter. And believe me, it is a tangle that can drive you almost crazy until you unravel it. And once you unravel it, you look at it and you go, it's really very simple. It's really not difficult at all. God is going to judge this nation. May I say God is already judging this nation. This nation is under the wrath of God. My question is this. Will we be Noah or will we be Ham? Will we be Lot or will we be Lot's wife? Or possibly, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, the bad gift that keeps on giving as bad as it was that his wife turned back, he lost his wife. You know what? Sometimes it's better to lose someone than to have someone go into even deeper and more perverted. And so when Lot flees and goes to the mountain, what happens? His daughters say, well, we're never going to marry. Let's get dad drunk. We'll have sex with dad and we'll bear children because that was so important in the ancient world to bear children. And, and it was the only thing they were focused on. We got to bear children. Let's get dad drunk. And now you've got the incest of Lot and his daughters bringing forth Moab and Ammon who are a curse to the nation of Israel all the way in will continue to be until Jesus Christ comes again. Can you begin to see how dangerous it is even for those that God has delivered to get caught up in the culture of the world around them? My friends, we talked earlier about the gray champion. May I say to each and every one of us here, each and every one of us is either going to be a blessing to generations yet unborn or we are going to be a curse to them. Let's decide today that we will be a champion in our own lineage, our own heritage, and our own home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the ladies who have labored to prepare food for us. Thank you, Father, for the hospitality of this church. Thank you for the welcome that they have given to us. Thank you for each and every one who has come. Father, we are all weak and poor and frail. We all struggle with our own ignorance, with our own misunderstanding, sometimes even with our own arrogance. But Father, we know that you're compassionate. We know that you're merciful. How we pray that you will look down on us and let that compassion bring to us the remedy for whatever sickness may afflict our soul, whatever part of this culture we may have digested and imbibed into our own system. I just pray, Father, that you'll continue to purify us, that we might be a church without spot and without blemish when our Lord and Savior returns for us. To this end, we pray under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, under the love of you, our Heavenly Father, and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray these things in his name. Amen.